Hello and welcome to Connect Points podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. the reports, get connected to what's going on around the world, get connected to the revivals that are happening in North America, get connected to what God is doing. We know what the world is doing. The world is doing what the Bible tells us the world is going to do. In fact, we don't even really need the world to do it. We know what's going to happen. Amen. Amen. And uh, so, you know, that's kind of like old news to us. Right? Amen. What the world is doing, the path that the world is taking, that's kind of old news to anybody who reads the Bible. But what we need to be paying attention to is what God is doing. Amen. And I promise you, if you will, you will be far more encouraged than what, if you're paying attention to what the world is doing. Amen. Amen. And also, we get to participate Amen. We get to participate in what God is doing. Amen. I like to be a participator. I like to be involved. I want to be involved in what God is doing in the world today. Amen. I don't want to just be a, amen, a, looking at what the world is doing and say, well, that's what they do, and I, I'm not a part of that, and I don't believe that. Okay, we get it. But what do we want to be a part of? What do we believe? What can we say? We got a great message, folks. We got a message that changed the world. We got a message that will change people's world. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your worship. That was wonderful. Appreciate you being here. Amen. On a Wednesday night, what a powerful thing it is to come together. Amen. And worship the Lord together and then study the word of the Lord together. And we've been in a series here. I frankly, I don't know how many lessons we've done now. I don't know if this is four or five or something. Uh, we're not going to complete it tonight, but we're going back at this, this uh, power and practice of prayer. Amen. And this is important to us because we are a people that believe in prayer, right? We believe in prayer and we do pray. That's the significant portion that is very, very important. We don't just believe in it. We do it. We participate in it. Believing in prayer is not going to do you any good if you're not participating in prayer. Participating in prayer will do you all good. Right? It'll do all the good that we need in our lives, but we have to participate in it. And you'll find that there is a very strong and direct correlation between where we are in our life and how we feel about life and what we think about life and what we think about others and how we feel about our day. Very strong correlation between that and our prayer life. Amen. This is why we encourage ourselves, we encourage one another to begin our day whenever your day begins, to begin our day with prayer, because it will change your entire outlook on what is happening in life. Amen. I'm not going to do a recap tonight. Frankly, we've covered too much ground to try to recap it. By the time I was done recapping it, I wouldn't be able to tell you anything new. So I'm going to strongly encourage that if you've missed any of the lessons, you have access to them, video access to them, and Please go back and watch them. It would be very helpful, amen, for all of us so that we could 
learn, be on the same page. You just don't want to miss what God is doing. We ended, though, last week uh, talking about, uh, we're in Matthew 6, and we're, we're using kind of this illustrative prayer that Jesus talks to his disciples about. And we ended by talking about forgive us our debts, right? We, we explained what that meant. We went into verbiage. We went into scriptural support. What does that mean, forgive us our debts? And now we're going to look beginning tonight, and we'll see how far we get on as we, everybody say, as we we. forgive our debtors, as we forgive our debtors. Now, I'm just going to say this. This is a little bold for right off the bat, but uh, frankly, I don't think people consider this enough. Uh, As a pastor and in the connection that I have in people's lives, uh, far too often, it is easy to sense unforgiveness in people's spirits. Things that they just won't let go of. Things that just keep coming up. Things that just, you know, that person, they did me wrong, man. And you say you forgave them, but you still want to run them over with your car. You say you forgave them, but when you hear bad news about them, there's a little bit of something inside of you that thinks, well, they deserve that, didn't they? So that tells on us. Our spirit, our words, our actions tell on us. And frankly, as much as I'm being a little bit funny because I'm trying to lighten the blow just a little bit, far too often I sense this even in church people, in apostolic people that they just really don't forgive completely and totally like we ought to. And so uh, we need to consider some stuff. Consider, consider the devastation of watching Peter turn his back when Christ is taken into custody. Consider the fact that he abandons Christ in the night that he stays away from this mockery of a trial that is not even right nor legal, that he then verbally denies Christ three different times, as Christ said he would, uh, and he does, and doesn't come to help, doesn't show up to defend, doesn't even show up to comfort Christ on the cross. John standing there with Mary, the mother of Jesus. How come Peter's not there? How come? How come he's not there? Just to be a friend, just to comfort, just to weep with those that weep. Why isn't he there? And yet that is the reality of the situation. And what we read in John 21 that a resurrected Christ comes upon the shoreline where his disciples have gone back to fishing. And Peter realizes it's Jesus on the shore. He jumps off the boat to get to Jesus. And Jesus, in a conversation with Peter, amen, he restores Peter's purpose to feed my sheep, he says. Three times he says it to Peter. Peter had denied Christ three times. And now Jesus makes three restoration statements to Peter. He says, basically, I forgive you. I forgive you. Feed my sheep. How do you know that he forgives Peter? Because he's calling Peter back to his purpose. 
How do you know true forgiveness is there? Because he's trying to restore Peter back to what he called Peter to in the first place. He hasn't given up on Peter. He hasn't written off Peter. He hasn't decided, Peter, you're not good enough to be the one, amen, to stand up and preach on the day of Pentecost. He hasn't decided that that ministry opportunity is gone from you now because you denied me so blatantly and boldly. No, you denied me three times. And so sitting on this uh, seashore over this fire, I'm going to look you in the eyes and I'm going to say, feed my sheep. Do your purpose. Fulfill your calling. That's forgiveness. If the one who hung on the cross for our sins and my sins and my transgressions can, can declare from that cross in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What greater illustration do we need it wasn't in the good days that Jesus really drives home the importance of forgiveness. It wasn't when the crowds were all around him that he decides to do a great lesson on forgiveness. It was on the cross. It was when in a dark moment. It was in a time of despair. It was when he had been wounded more than anyone's ever been wounded, spiritually, physically, emotionally attacked and wounded. And yet in that state, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They, they don't understand. You see, we should pay attention when he speaks about forgiving others. We should take it seriously when he says that our forgiveness hangs in the balance, whether we forgive or not. And I really need us to grasp and get a revelation, if necessary, of this idea that people don't really know what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, this is the issue that we have, is that we don't forgive people because we assign understanding to them that they have complete understanding and knowledge, and yet they do these horrendous things, and we say they know exactly what they were doing. I understand that they, they, the words came out of their mouth. I understand that they talked bad about you behind your back. I understand that they attacked your child or they, or they, they, they did something uh, against you. They hurt you. They abuse you. I understand that. What I, what I need us to get on revelation of is that they don't fully understand what they're doing. Because if they fully understood their sin and that they fully understood the end result of sin, if they fully understood hell, they wouldn't do it. This is why when the crowd says, uh, come down from the cross, come down from the cross. If you be he, come down from the cross. This is why Jesus has to ignore them. Because they don't understand he's paying the price for their redemption. He's paying the price for some of those same people are going to be standing outside of a house with an upper room when the Holy Ghost is poured out. Some of those same people are going to be baptized in his name and filled with his spirit. And they're going to build the church in Jerusalem. And some of those same people are going to take that gospel message. Amen. And it's going to spread around the world. Some of those same people. So they don't understand. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We need to get a revelation of that. 
Yes, they hurt you, and yes, it hurts, but they know not what they do. If they knew better, they wouldn't do it. Amen? It's actually after the amen of this illustrative prayer in Matthew 6 that Jesus makes this comment. It's right after it in Matthew 6, 14 through 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I want to remind us that Matthew 6, 12 says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As we. Or in relation to. Or in connection to. Forgive me in the same way that I forgive them. Amen. We can see this also in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. In the conclusion of this parable of Christ to the people that were there listening to him and he's trying to teach them some powerful things, he says in Matthew 18, 32-35, Then his Lord, after that he called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. The servant had come to his Lord and master and he owed a great massive debt to the Lord, to his master. And he comes falling upon his face, prostrating himself before his master, begging him with tears. I I can't pay the debt. I can't do it. I need you to forgive the debt. There's no way I'll ever be able to work it off. There's no way I'll ever be able to, amen. You can take everything I own. You can throw me in prison. You can do all this stuff, but I cannot pay the debt I owe you. This man says to his master, and then he comes and he leaves the master. He goes and finds someone who owes him much less. He leaves the master who had just forgiven him of a great debt. And he goes and finds someone who owes him so much less. He says, shouldest now thou also have compassion on thy fellow servant, even I, even as I had pity on thee? He said, shouldn't, shouldn't, you have, shouldn't you have showed some compassion? They owed you. But you had just been forgiven of a huge debt. That didn't cross your mind when you had an opportunity to forgive this person? It didn't cross your mind how much you've been forgiven? It ought to cross our minds how much we've been forgiven. When we're put in a position to forgive or not forgive someone else, it ought to cross my mind how much he's forgiven me, how much I've got under the blood, how much he's brought me out, how many times he's picked me up and dusted me off. It ought to cross my mind. He says that you didn't, even, you didn't even think it about it. You didn't have compassion on him. You didn't have pity like I did on you. And his Lord was wroth, angry, upset, and delivered him to the tormentors. He delivered him to the tormentors. Let me just tell you real quickly, unforgiveness always leads to torment. Unforgiveness always leads to torment. And you, the one who will not forgive, will be the one tormented. While the person that you're withholding forgiveness from is just going to move on with their life. They're just going to move on with their life. They're just going to live their day. They're just going to go about their day while you will be tormented. Because you have unforgiveness till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly father. And this is where Jesus turns it now. And he makes the parable hit home to the people listening. He says, 
so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Amen. Mark eleven twenty four through 26, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. How many think that's awesome? How many think that part of prayer is really awesome? Whatsoever things you desire, believe and you're going to get it. I like that. Amen. I like that. Amen. And when you stand praying, forgive. Everybody there? Everybody see it? And when you stand praying, forgive. If you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is Mark eleven twenty four through 26. May forgive you your trespasses, but if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. So you can go, we can go from whatever you desire you shall have to neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive you your trespasses. We go from those two extremes simply by not forgiving. Somebody say any. Oh, hallelujah. Any, all that you have ought against them. Ought. I tried to find a really good explanation of the word ought because we don't use the word ought. And it doesn't really exist. I looked in a lot of places. Basically, what you come away with is this. Ought is an issue and you know you have it when you have it. <laughs> Odd is an issue you have between you and someone else, and you know when you have it. Nobody has to tell you. Nobody has to explain it to you. You know, right? He says you have to forgive, amen, those, their trespasses. And so I think it's very important that we understand tonight what Jesus in this illustrative prayer is trying to get across he's trying to get it across to us that this whole there's 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 a lot hanging on this idea the focus of your prayer the outcome of our prayer there's you 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 could pray a lot of prayers and just be sending words out into the atmosphere It's not doing anything. Why? Why isn't it doing anything? Because you, there's unforgiveness. There's unforgiveness. And prayer is good and prayer is wonderful and we, just, we should pray as much as we can pray, but I sure don't want to waste prayer. I sure don't want to get up in the morning and spend time praying and go through all these things that we've been talking about and going through all these steps and trying to get all this stuff right and then nullify it all because I refuse to forgive somebody. Amen? Let's take just a little bit of a sidebar here away from the illustrated prayer step by step and Something that we can add into our prayer lives is we can pray the word. Everybody say, pray the word. And I just want to illustratively throw a couple things at you. There's thousands, probably millions of different ways to look at this but, and apply this, I should say. But, for instance, you're, you're praying about healing. Well, First Peter 2 and 24, who his own self bear our sins and his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. 
Amen. You can pray that scripture. You can pray the principle of that scripture, or you can pray that scripture word for word. You can pray the idea of it, the principle of it. You can say, God, in your word, you declare to us that by your stripes we are healed, and so I need healing today, and so I'm praying. I'm standing upon the promise of that word. I'm believing that you are able to heal me because of Calvary. You can pray that prayer, or you can memorize the scripture. We talked last week about thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You can memorize the scripture and actually quote that scripture over your own life when you need healing in your life. Everybody understands tonight, right? Somebody else doesn't have to quote scripture over your life. You can quote scripture over your own life. Amen. You can quote scripture over your own life. Somebody else doesn't have to pray for you all the time. You can pray for yourself. I know I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again. I, one of my favorite stories Brother Bernard ever tells is about when he was in his home one night and there was nobody there and he started feeling bad. He thought he was possibly having a stroke. Amen. He, he, he dialed the ambulance and while he was waiting on the ambulance, he said, I just threw my own head, hand on my head and prayed in Jesus' name. God, heal me right now. He said, everything worked out fine. Amen. Now, don't say to me, well, he's Brother Bernard. Please don't miss the point of the whole thing. Amen. I've seen this illustrated my whole life, and the reason why this keeps having to come up is because for some reason in, in, in the church world, we get sucked into these ideas and these thought processes that are very human and very fleshly. And so since I was a little kid, I have seen Big-time preachers and evangelists, prophets, amen, apostles of nations who have come and, and, and preached at camps and camp meetings that I was at. I've seen this if I, probably five or six times in my life, amen, by people that are considered wonderful, powerful people of God. That while they were preaching and teaching about the miraculous power of God and how God could heal and how God could deliver, they'll stop and they'll say, uh, now I want to show you something tonight. And they'll grab someone from the audience or they'll grab some kid from the front row and they'll say, I want you to come up here. And, and they'll say, now, do you believe, you know, do you believe God can heal? Do you have faith that God can do this? You know, of course, you're in an atmosphere. Everybody's got faith. You know, this is good, you know. And, and then and they'll say, okay, does anybody in this place need a healing? And there's people that need healing. So, okay, does anybody in this place have faith that if you'll come up here and let this, this person lay their hands on you and pray in the name of Jesus that you can be healed? What has just happened? What has just happened is one person has declared that they believe that Jesus Christ is going to heal somebody in that moment, that their faith is in God to heal, declared faith. Someone else who needs a healing has stood and declared by faith. I believe that right now I could receive my healing. Amen. If I get prayed for in the name of Jesus. And so the great, wonderful, uh, powerful man of God, woman of God, whoever it is, stands to the side and this thing happens and miracle testimonies come out of it. In fact, I, I'm sitting here telling this story and I'm reminded that this happened at our own family camp just this past summer. Amen. And somebody, uh, sister, somebody, Sister Hansen even got on social media and declared on social media that she was miraculously healed in that moment that I think some teenage boy prayed for her that night. And that's wonderful and that's awesome. But the reason why we have to keep illustrating this to the church is because we forget it. 
We have to keep illustrating it over and over and over again because when we don't remind people that there is power in prayer and that if you have faith and you believe that God will answer your prayer, what you ask for, God is able to do it, will respond to your faith, we start falling into this trap that the preacher needs to pray for me, the pastor needs to pray for me, the evangelist needs to pray for me, I need to get in my car and travel to some revival because somebody over there needs to pray for me. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. It's not. Believe me, I like being prayed for. And if there's somebody in the house that's, you know, if they, if they come by and they're praying for me, I, let them pray for me. I'll take it. I don't care. I, I've had little kids walk up before and pray for me. Love it. Elders have spoken wonderful things over my life. Love it. People I've never met in my life, maybe never met again, have prayed for me at conferences. Praise God for it. I don't believe that they can hurt me with their prayers, so I only believe it can help me. Amen? Amen. And so it's important that we understand that, the, the, that when we begin to pray, we can pray with faith and understanding. We can pray the word. We can speak these things over our own lives. The word is for everybody. It's not just something to be preached or taught. It's for you to to speak over your own life at any point, at any time. You can pray if you're praying for a seemingly impossible situation. Mark 10, 27, Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For God, with God all things are possible. That's a nice faith-building verse to, to declare when you're praying in your own daily prayer time. We need verses like John 15 and 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Amen. You say, well, why do I need to remind God of that? You're not reminding God of anything. You're talking to yourself. You're telling your flesh. Right? I'm telling my flesh. My spirit is telling my flesh that I can believe it and that it will be possible because God's going to do it. You're praying about a situation that you cannot handle? Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes unto the hills from which cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. You catch that? You see the faith building in that statement? I lift up my eyes. So I'm, I'm declaring that I'm going to do something. I'm going to lift up my eyes. When you say those words, when you're praying in your living room or your den or your Whatever, wherever you pray, amen. When you're praying and you say, I'm going to lift up my eyes, you know you actually do it. You do it. You spiritually lift up your eyes. It's faith building. The word of God is powerful. Amen. I'm going to look to the hills from which cometh my help. Where does my help come from? Somebody tell me where your help comes from. It comes from the Lord. And what did he do? He made heaven and earth. What is, that? what is the point of that? The point of that is, is I'm telling my flesh, my problem's not that big. It's not that big of a deal to him. It's big to me, but it's not big to him. He created the heavens and the earth. If he could create the heavens and the earth, and by the way, created me also, then he can handle my problem. Amen. One of the reasons why praying the word is good is because the word is so well written. We try to say things like that when we pray and we get all tongue-tied and our brains get all mushy and we're like, that's not what I meant. You ever find yourself telling God, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean to say that. That came out wrong. 
Which is funny when you believe that God knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart, but we still do it. We're like, that's not really what I meant, what I'm trying to say. But the word says it so beautifully. So we can pray the word. My help coming from the Lord made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy keeper. If I'm praying for someone, I might say the Lord is thy keeper. But if I'm praying this, I'm going to say the Lord is my keeper. The Lord is my keeper. He keeps me. The Lord is my shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite me by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve me from all evil. He shall preserve my soul. The Lord shall preserve my going out and my coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. I make it personal. I make the word personal. If you're praying about a problem that, that has you on the brink of despair, Romans 8, 35 through 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Oh, I love it. How, you can't even say it without getting excited. Who shall separate us? It's a bold, bold declaration with a question mark at the end. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written. Oh, there you go. That's a good one. As it is written. Amen. Now we're starting to sound like Jesus when he's in the wilderness and the devil's coming after him. Amen. As it is written, we declare the word. For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded. Oh, let me tell you something. You need to hear yourself say that once in a while. Somebody, I'm telling you, you need to hear yourself say once in a while, I am persuaded. I have made up my mind. I have determined this is who I am. This is what I'm going to believe. This is how I'm going to act. This is how I'm going to think. I am persuaded neither death nor life nor angels, principalities or powers, things present, things to come, height nor death nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing's going to be. You need to hear yourself pray that once in a while when you're walking around in your house or sitting in your chair or praying at work on your work break. I am persuaded. Amen. Amen. I am persuaded. Oh, hallelujah. If you're a parent and your children are around, they need to hear you I am persuaded. Your children need to hear you pray with confidence and boldness. Your children need to hear you pray prayers that declare, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. I'm staying with Jesus. I'm staying in the word. I'm not looking on the other side. I'm not looking for something better. I found it. Amen. Amen. We have access to just so much in the word, in the word. That's just, that's just five verses. You can pray. The, the Bible's full of things you can pray. It doesn't have to be a prayer. It doesn't even have to be a prayer in the Bible. It can be any scripture in the Bible that it pertains to us. It was New Year's Day in the Tournament of Roses parade when one of the beautiful floats suddenly sputters and stops because that which was pulling it was out of gas. The whole parade is held up until someone could get a can of gas and go and fill up this little truck or whatever was holding this, this beautiful uh, float. The thing that everyone found so amusing was that the float represented the Standard Oil Company. 
It was the Standard Oil Company float, and it ran out of gas. And that's funny. With all of its vast resources, its truck was out of gas. So think about that. You and I have access to an endless supply of everything we need in God. Everything we need, an endless supply of it in God. And our relationship with that God who offers us everything we need, our relationship with him is developed in prayer. It's the communication that builds relationships. Marital tip for the night. Communication builds relationships. Amen. I might be saying that a little bit more often because I was praying this week and I had this thought about giving marital tips while I was preaching. And I wasn't planning on doing that, but it just came out just now. So that may be something God wants to do for a little while. So be ready for marital tips while I'm preaching and teaching. We have access. And what, what a shame it would be for apostolic Pentecostal be people to be running on empty when we have access to all that God is. When we can simply pray and be filled to overflowing. We can just simply have a conversation with him and be full. Amen. That would, that, that's a sad state that we would live our lives anywhere but on full when all we have to do is talk to him. Amen. Let's talk about prayers, about temptations. Let's get back to Matthew 6. We took a little detour there for a little bit. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? Now, the word lead here that's used is troublesome to some people, especially when it's put in this illustrative prayer that we're supposed to pattern ourselves after. It's better understood what he's saying when he says lead us when we actually do a study of the word temptation. Lead us not into temptation. So the word temptation here in this context, in many, many contexts throughout Scripture, means adversity. It means trial. It means test. Everybody say test. Amen. What's interesting about this word when you study it is that this word temptation, the same word, is used a lot in Scripture, but it can have a righteous application or it can have an evil application. So it's interesting because it's left up to us to actually you know, care enough to look into it a little bit to understand what it means. Now, most of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time, we don't have to look it up because the context of what we are reading helps us to understand what the word is implying. Amen. So that's why it's important that we have context, right? That we understand. We don't just grab a sentence and say, well, this is what this means. You have to look at the context. You have to look at what else is going on. So it can have both a righteous or an evil application. Because we know, James 1, 13 through 15, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Right? For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We have scripture that tells us God does not use temptation. But what does that mean? Because we have this 
other words and other times using temptation is used. Well, it's the context of it. Just a side note here, real quickly. The word where it says, uh, God cannot be tempted with evil, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Just a side note, that word lust means longing for something forbidden. It's important that we understand that that's what that means because it's of a much broader context than sexual sin. It's not just sexual sin. Everybody puts it in that little box. But that's not the, how it works. It's, it's a fleshly desire to act in any sinful way. It's my fleshly desire to do anything sinful. That's interesting. Just a little side note. When we know that Jesus doesn't tempt us, but he does test us, he does so with purpose. Everybody say with purpose. James 1, 2, and 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into, look at it again, though, diverse temptations. It's the same word, temptations. That word temptations means the same thing. It's trial, it's adversity. Knowing this, though, that the trying of your faith worketh. Somebody say worketh. Now we get some context that helps us to understand which is this good or is this evil. It worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. So this temptation, this adversity, this trial that comes into our life, it comes with purpose. And what is that purpose? Because the purpose helps me to know if this is evil or if this is righteous. Well, the purpose, it says here, is that I might have Patience. Patience. Well, patience is a good thing, isn't it? So the context is good. Therefore, the word temptation that's used here in this context means it's a beneficial thing for us. It's designed of God to make us stronger. It's designed of God to make me better. He's trying to grow me. Psalm 11 and 5, the Lord trieth, that word means test to prove, the righteous but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. What does that mean? It means that when I'm tested of God, that's a good indication I'm on the right team. When I'm going through a test. Oh, hallelujah. Now this is a good revelation to get because it'll fix your, your thinking on a whole lot of stuff. Fix your thinking on a whole lot of stuff. When I'm going, as, as a Christian person, as an apostolic person, when I go through a test, it's significant. It's illustrative. It means I'm on the right team. It means I'm on God's side. You say, well, I don't understand that. It means he's, a test comes from God, which means he's trying to grow me. See, when you say things like, God, do whatever you want to do in my life. He will. In fact, I've learned that even if I don't tell him to do whatever he wants to do in my life, a lot of times he still does it anyway. Because he's got purpose for me. He's got greater things for me than I possibly even have for myself. Let's look at Hebrews eleven seventeen. 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, which means he was tested. He was tested for a reason, though. Test to prove. 
offered up Isaac, and he, had that, and, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Now, uh, one, one commentator said this. God takes us through tests to try our faith and discern its composition. I like that. God takes us to try our faith to determine what our faith is really made of. You ever hear somebody say something like that? Well, I just want to see what they're made of. Right? Well, he's, he wants to see what our faith is composed of, what it's made of. Is it genuine or is it false? Is it weak or is it strong? Furthermore, I'm still quoting now, since God has great plans for each of his children, test our preparation for greater works. This person goes on to say, just as test in school would be. Right? You don't go, well, I don't know how many of them started school. I know some of them are starting this week, tomorrow maybe. You don't go to school, learn stuff for a week, and then the teacher says, all right, we're going to have a test tomorrow. And you say, you, you, how dare you? You're a horrible person. How dare you test us? What is this anyway? I mean, I'm here, aren't I? I showed up, didn't I? Now you're going to test me too? We don't do that. Why? Because we understand the purpose of a test. The purpose of the test is to let me know if I learned anything. Amen. Now when you don't pay any attention in class and you don't study and you don't read and you sleep away, amen, you stay up till 1 o'clock in the morning and you're not able to even function in school, when you do that, You're probably not going to do good on a test. And you probably aren't expecting to do very good on a test. Right? But if you do try and study a little bit, and you do pay attention, and you do, you do some reading, and you, you, you look over the notes, and you take a test, you actually want to know how you did. Because it's a good gauge to whether or not you're learning the material. And if I don't learn the material, I need to go back. This is where people get really frustrated with God. I have to go back and learn it again. Oh. That's the worst. I got to go through this again. Yeah. And then you take another test. Oh. I got to do this again. Yeah. That's not because God hates you. That's because God loves you. Amen. And so, it's, so believers go through tests to build and strengthen their faith. I'm, I'm back to this quote again. Without believing in God, uh, nothing is possible. Therefore, tests are the lot of God's children because they must be prepared for the things God desires them to accomplish. Oh, I like that. That's much better, isn't it? Amen. I'm not just learning it to pass the test. I'm learning it to pass the tests so I can be ready for what God has for me next. So that I can take a step in my, amen, my ministry. So that I can take a step in my ability to fight the devil. So I can take a step in my ability to be an apostolic Christian. Amen. It's not just about a test. 
It's about being prepared for what God wants to do. Abraham encountered a very difficult test. We know that. That only son. Take your only son up onto the mountain and offer him there as a sacrifice. That is a monumental test. But think about it. He encountered a very difficult test because of the great call that was on Abraham's life. He was called to be a great nation, and through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Essentially, the gospel would come through Abraham and his family. In order to fulfill this, Abraham needed to be tested and built up. He had a massive calling on his life. Huge. And so his test... See, that's the thing about wanting to, that's the thing about desiring more and wanting to do more and achieve more and be more. The tests get harder. The higher the calling, the tests are stronger. And you should never back away from a test and you should never give up and you should never quit. You should never say no because you should be everything God has called you to be. But just understand the point. He can't put you in the situation to fulfill that calling if you haven't been tested that your faith will stand. Amen. And so with with that, one of the things that we must learn is if we're going to pass God's test is to expect them. Somebody say, expect them. People don't expect God to test them. I don't know why. He does it over and over and over in Scripture. He tells us he's going to do it repeatedly, and then we're shocked when he does it. You know, that's one of the reasons why we fail tests from God. We're not expecting them. We get mad at God. And then we're shocked by the difficulty that we encounter. And some people even fall away from God when tests come into their life. So just hear your pastor tonight. Expect tests. Right? The teacher said it all the time when I was in school. I don't know what they say nowadays. But when I was in the school, they would start to talk about information. She would be writing Yes, writing stuff on the board. Yes, we're old. Ha, 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 ha. Writing stuff on the board. She would be using your reading assignments. And then, and then she or he would say, you can expect this to be on the test. Right? And when they would say that, you would perk up. Because you might not, all the other stuff she'd been saying all day may not be on the test. But if this is going to be on the test, I need to know what they're talking about. I can expect this to be on a test. Well, hear your pastor tonight. You can expect there to be a test. Just expect it. Amen. Somebody say praise God. In Matthew 13, 20 through 21, the parable of the sower, Jesus describes people who receive the word of God, and he says they receive it on stony ground. Everybody say stony ground. Which means they, they receive it with joy, he says, but when trouble or persecution comes, they quickly fall away. They don't, they don't last. They can't stand up against trouble. It knocks them down. 
the fall away. The implication is that these people weren't expecting any trouble to come, and therefore they didn't prepare themselves. How would they have prepared themselves? Well, like anyone who's trying to grow something, you got to get the rocks out of there, right? <laughs> you got to get the stones out of there. That's why if you drive through, amen, southern Minnesota, you go get on some of these back roads and you get by some of these old farms, there's always a big pile of rocks somewhere. Because every time they run into these rocks, they get those rocks and they say, I can't leave that here. Why can't that rock stay there? Because it's going to interfere with your growth. So I got to move that out of the way. But the stony ground is not prepared. And so the seed comes and it starts to grow up. But then the trial comes or the test comes and then they fall away because they're not getting the rocks out. The Apostle Peter said this to the Christians who were suffering for their faith in Rome. He says, friends, don't be surprised at the painful trials, 1 Peter 4 and 12. He says, don't be surprised at the painful trials that you are suffering as though something strange was happening to you. Don't be shocked by it. Don't be surprised by it as if something strange was happening to you. Essentially, he says, you need to expect it. Expect it. Now, before we get, before your brain gets off course here for a second, let me just pull everyone back. You say, well, why in the world would I want to be an apostolic Christian if i got to go through all this stuff? Just take a moment and look at what the world's going through. Get to know people a little bit. Don't, not the facade, not the Facebook world. Get to know people a little bit and ask yourself, what would you rather go through? What would you rather go through? I'm not talking about the fake and the facade. I'm saying get to know people. Get to know them and ask yourself, would I want to go through that? Or would I rather take some tests? Do I want to go through temptations that are evil, that are destroying people's lives? Do I want to go through trials and devastations that the, that the devil is bringing upon people and, and bringing all kinds of darkness and addictions and breaking up their marriages and tearing apart their mind and stealing their peace and all the junk they're going through? Or do I want to go through some tests that come from God that bring me joy and bring me strength and make me a better person, make me a better husband, make me a better father, make me a be better Christian? Amen. He says, expect it. Now, remember that God is a God of forward. He's a God of upward. He's a God of growth. He's a God of advancement, right? Amen. His desire is never to leave us where we are. Never. It's never his desire to leave us where we are. He, he, he always is trying to make us who we could be, who he designed us to be, purposed to be. So, so the problem is, is we are so accustomed to settling. We just settle for stuff. We have such low expectations of ourselves. We have such low expectations of people around us. I mean... It's just the bar is not real high in our society today. I'm not trying to talk down on anybody. I'm not trying to speak badly about things. But you walk into uh, places of business. You walk into uh, these things. Uh, a lot of times nowadays your expectations are just not that high. You know, it's just the table is 
got sticky stuff all over it. There's french fries on the carpet. And you think to yourself, do I want to wait 20 minutes for this to get cleaned, or should I just go get the bucket and do it myself? Have you ever just gotten the bucket and did it yourself? They don't do the buckets anymore. Now they got that magical blue fluid that they spray everywhere. But have you ever just cleaned the table yourself? Because you're like, I, I just... You know, we, we, we expect people to be rude sometimes. We expect people. People act like jerks and we're like, well, what else would they act like? They walk in unhappy and down. What else would they walk? But here's the thing we need to understand. That God is not like us. He has high expectations. And he has the ability to get us there. Oh, that's what I love about it. He has high expectations for me. But that doesn't scare me because he also is the only way I'm going to get there. I'm not going to get there on my own. I'm not going to achieve it on my own. But, but with God, I can achieve it. With God, I can do it. He's got high expectations for me. He wants to do great things with our lives. And he can help us actually do it. He can actually help us, help us do it. Amen. So he's not like us. So why would we pray, lead us not into temptation? Why would we say, lead us not into temptation, adversity, trial, test? Because there is the good side, the righteous side, use of this idea, John 6, 5 through 9. When Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, when shall ye buy bread that these may eat? And he said to prove him, look at this, and he said this to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered and said, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them can even make, take a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, there is a lad here who hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Jesus only asked them the question because he wants to test them and see what they'll say. In fact, it tells us in the word, he already knew what he was going to do. It literally says it. He knew what he was going to do, but he asked them anyway just to see what they'll say. Amen. Philip was not seeing any possibility at all, and the reason why he wasn't seeing any possibility because all of his possibilities were money-based. And man, oh man, oh man, I never thought about that before, and you can, you, believe me, you're going to hear me preach or teach about that in the future. His whole idea and concept of fixing something was money-based. And because he didn't have much money, there was no way it was possible. But Andrew, he actually saw a source of food. He, he sees a source of food. There's this guy over, this little boy over here. He's got this little bitty lunch. He sees it, but he's not, not really sure that this is possible because what is this? And there's so many. But Jesus already knew, but he was just testing them. So there's the good side the righteous side. But there's also the evil use of this idea. And let me look at a few scriptures and then we'll wrap it up. Luke twenty two thirty one. 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Jesus tells Peter this in advance. He says, something's coming. You have an enemy. His goal is to attack you. Don't be unaware of this. Don't be ignorant of this. Don't be surprised by this. And then in Luke twenty-two thirty-nine forty, 39, 40, not far after that, and he came out and went as he 
was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that ye enter not into temptation. So now we see that there's another side, another use of this word temptation, that there's an evil context, that Jesus is saying, you don't want any part of this. Pray, though, that you enter not into temptation. And then Luke twenty two forty five 45 through 46, and when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow and said unto them, why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. They fall asleep. It says they fell asleep for sorrow. They were upset. They were struggling. They were having a bad day. They didn't like the way things were playing out. So they sat down in the ground and decided to have a little pity party and then just wore themselves out and fell asleep. Jesus didn't say have a pity party. Jesus said pray. Pray, pray that you don't enter temptation. Pray, pray that you don't enter. Wake up and pray. He wakes them up. Why are you asleep? Rise and pray lest you enter temptation. This is the work of evil to lead us astray, to confuse us, to destroy us, to get us to wallow in our sin. That's the work of evil, to get us to stay in a place like that. This is why we pray, lead us not into temptation. This is the context. This is what he's saying. You have an enemy. He wants to sift you as wheat. He wants to separate you and disperse you and distract you and destroy you. So pray that you don't go into that temptation. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Why? Matthew 26 and 41, what does he say? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh. This is what Jesus is trying to get to in our prayer. He's trying to remind us your flesh is weak. Your flesh is weak. See, it is when we follow our flesh that we fail. It's when we follow our flesh that we're sifted as we, when we fall into temptation. It's because we, we, we follow our flesh. This is proof that our spirit is still subject to our flesh. When my spirit is overrun by my flesh, that means my spirit is subject to my flesh. It means my flesh is calling the shots. It means my flesh is dictating the atmosphere. It's dictating the situation. No matter what's going on in the spirit, my flesh is in control. And if that's happening in my life, then I understand I've got an issue and I've got to get to God and I've got to pray until my flesh is down and my spirit is up until my man is crucified with Christ. Because the flesh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is why God is telling them, pray, lead us not into temptation. Because while God is trying to grow us past things, Satan is using things against us. And so we have to pray. But I don't get led into temptation. But I want you to remember this. After Jesus told Peter that, Satan hath desired to have you. He declares in Luke twenty two thirty two, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. This is before the failure. And when thou art converted, 
Jesus is looking ahead past a cross to a seashore with a little fire where he's going to tell Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He's hardy. <laughs> he's already looking past. He sees it. He sees the devil's trying to get you. You need to pray, Peter. You need to pray. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And I want you to know that when you get converted, when you get on the other side of this thing, amen, your purpose is still going to be there. See, it's never his intention for our faith to fail. He will never lead us into a temptation that we cannot escape. We know the Bible tells us that. But Satan will. Satan will. So we have to pray against it. And we have to pray with confidence. And we should pray with confidence. You know why you should pray with confidence? Because you have a prayer partner. And his name is Jesus. He says to Peter, you need to pray. But Peter, I want you to know, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. We have a prayer partner. Oh, hallelujah. And it's the Lord God Almighty is on our side. Oh, hallelujah. Stand with me if you would, please. So therefore we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Rescue us from evil. Rescue us from impending danger. Rescue us. Amen. The Apostle Paul said this last scripture. He tells this to Timothy. four seventeen through 18 of 2 Timothy. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil doesn't just mean deliver me from Satan's attack. It means deliver me from all evil. Deliver me from all evil. There's a lot more evil that exists in the world than just what Satan himself does directly. There's a lot more evil that exists in the world than what all of his demons can do directly. There's a lot of evil that's done in the world just person to person. But Paul says, he delivered me from every evil work. Oh, hallelujah. How many are thankful for that tonight? Amen. That the Lord will strengthen me that the Lord shall deliver me from every eagle work. Jesus, we love you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you, and we hope you have a great week.